0: So one thing I, I thought we might ask about that we've been talking about mostly state actors and a fear um, to New Yorkers probably uh, although maybe it's not the same existential fear as in the state action we've been talking about is a non-state actor getting hold of not just radioactive material a dirty bomb but an actual suitcase nuke or, or nuclear weapon how how likely is that I mean I've heard varying different things although the the fact that the chatter, it feels like, has turned much more towards, oh, a dirty bomb, which to me is not a, you know, it doesn't end New York, kills a couple thousand people. We've had that happen in New York. New York survived. It was fine. Um, like, how likely is the the actual, like, well, nuke outcome there? I
1: think the the most worrying thing is that coming up with an actual likelihood probability, it's very hard to do. It's hard to even know where you'd get the terms, you can come up with a sort of a heuristic, like Drake equation style, like what what are the factors? Um, some of them you can estimate, and some of them we just don't know what the numbers would be. Um, I would say greater than zero, but. That doesn't necessarily mean that I think some people have said things like ten percent. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean once every ten years? Does it mean if we rerun history, you know, in, in ten different simulations, every one of one of them will have it? I don't know. I don't really know what that probability means when it's expressed like that. That seems high to me. Uh, when you do risk estimates, risk is you know, in a technical sense, is likelihood multiplied by consequence. So the consequence of this is extremely high likelihood is pretty low so this is falls under high risk even though uh the likelihood might not be
0: well uh, where's the the chain in that fermi equation that maybe gives you the most confidence that the likelihood is actually very low i understand these things are difficult to yeah the, the, the key 100 uh,
1: percent. the whole banana can you acquire fissile material in adequate quantities and the type of fissile material does matter depending on your technical level though you could probably pull something off with even plutonium if you are not one person trying to do it but if you are a organized group that has some funding and has some technical people which they do um uh, you know you'd you'd be people uh, often people believe that terrorists are just like a bunch of idiots and there is a brand of terrorists which is like totally uneducated idiot tries to set his underwear on fire on a plane right like sure. and those guys fortunately don't usually have a lot of success uh the other brand of terrorists are extremely highly trained engineers and so a lot of the 9 guys they got plan 9-11 khalil Sheikh muhammad very well trained uh it, if you read the 9-11 report i love it only one person in the entire report is credited with any imagination and it's khalil uh, Sheikh muhammad and it's like that's great that's is what we need in this world <laughs> um, the uh uh and there's interesting reasons for why that is but if a terrorist group even a low not even very important one if they got 60 kilograms of high enriched uranium no problem they could do it uh I, my, my students could do it any reasonably well equipped engineering department could got it do that. so the
0: so the step is actually acquiring 60 kilograms of highway enriched uranium and presumably getting it to the location,
1: getting it to the location. Let's imagine it's you've acquired it from shady Russian arms dealers or something. You have to get it, and you want to bring it to New York. You have to get it to New York. Unfortunately, uh, uranium is pretty hard to detect. Uh, we have like pretty elaborate radiation detection at the port uh, port shippings at the moment. It, you don't need to do a lot to shield uranium from that. We're not talking about like a foot of lead. We're talking about a foot of wax, that kind of thing.
0: Got it. So you run it really in any shipping container
1: insulated. It's going to be, if you have put any effort in, in research, Googled the issue, the, the problem is it's all neutrons and, and not gammas. And gammas are easy to detect. Neutrons are not. You can scatter a neutron with a bunch of water, right? It's, it's not the, uh, uh, it's not hard to to get out there. So the smuggling problem exists. It's not the hardest problem. Uh there, there is a lot of the stuff in the world. There are on I'm trying to remember the exact amount of high rich uranium, but it's on the order of hundreds to thousands of tons. And again, you need about 50, 60 kilograms. So uh, but uh, fortunately it's expensive <laughs> and it's not only produced in several locations, and in theory it's only kept in several locations. So and fit, and usually In places where it's not as secure, so there are, for example, uh, the the nuclear reactor that MIT uses runs on, at the moment, they're, I think, converting it to low-enriched, but it runs on, you know, 93% high-enriched uranium. But uh, these research reactors might only have, say, five kilograms. So if you were going to do this, you'd have to get a bunch of
0: it. And that's why it's always the scenarios that I've heard usually start with, right, Russian arms dealers from poorly maintained uh, Russian nuclear depots or, or the place where they have fissile material.
1: If you have 50-60 kilograms, any moron can make a nuclear weapon. Like almost literally any moron. Like you could you can't quite do the thing where you throw one bucket of it at another bucket. But it's not that complicated and the scale of, of things.
0: just it, gets criticality. It just
1: has to get criticality. And and they the equations are not even that complicated for that. I have a buddy who's a physicist at uh, uh, Alma College, and he publishes these things. and He publishes these crazy articles. I love him. Uh, he's very he's extremely prolific. There's a journal that is nothing but like pedagogical issues for physicists, like like cool physics you can teach your students. And he. He exclusively uses it for like here's how you can do all the calculations for making a terrorist nuclear weapon and you and, he, and he'll do in and, and, he, and he's relatively low tech in some ways computer wise so it's always this crazy ex- excel spreadsheet where you use the finder thing and you just put in like how much okay what kind of material what's the mass how fast is this and 15 kilotons very nice um, i find this really nice how oh, how does the tamper affect things he'll, he'll tell you how to do that um that stuff is easy it's not about knowledge it's about materials It's a little harder if you're trying to do it with less material. So you can technically make uh, a nuclear weapon with maybe 10 kilograms of uranium or with maybe four or five kilograms of plutonium or even better. If you have like two kilograms of plutonium and like five kilograms of uranium, that can make a weapon. But that's a much harder weapon to pull off. That's the sort of thing that is not necessarily impossible for a non-state group to pull off. Uh, and there have been non-state groups that have looked into this uh, and, and thought about this. That that Japanese cult that did the syringe gas oh, clearly, Shinrikyo. yeah, they they were interested in this. Mm-hmm. They apparently didn't get that far in the actual research of that, but they were interested in making an implosion weapon. They were trying to acquire the kinds of material uh, tools you would need to start thinking that through. But as far as we know, they weren't doing the. Ex- they hadn't started doing experiments with with say shaped charges and things like that. Um, so it's not impossible. It is difficult. And that's fortunate. Uh, We haven't had anybody really try to do it in a sustained way that got close to it. Is that because, uh, excuse me, let me rephrase that. We have not detected anybody who has uh, tried to get that close to it. Is that because they don't exist? Is that because uh, on the scale of where to put your resources, uh, that isn't necessarily worth it? Um, I don't know. And we don't know. And that's the most disturbing part about this. It's also why we don't know why, you know, the Dirty Bomb scenario. What, why hasn't that happened? That's way easier. Uh, is it because we're really good at catching people? Because it's actually harder than we think? Because, uh, Or is it, you know, for some other reason? I don't know. We don't actually know that. I don't understand the story.
0: harder than we think about Dirty Bombs. I mean, the, di- the fact that we haven't been hit by a Dirty Bomb either speaks to some, like, strong form multiverse thing or, like, just a uh, general, I mean... Like maybe just there aren't actually that many people who want to do such a thing, because you have to imagine if people wanted to do, do such, you just put explosives next to radioactive material. It's- one of the
2: ways that I, I think about this is that yes, like if you have the material, it's uh, it's relatively easy. But um, you know, uh, maybe a, a more baseline question would be to ask like, well, why haven't there been more like bombs generally, right? So, and I think the answer to that is kind of twofold, right? Like one one factor is that they're not enough people who actually want to do that. And the other thing is, I think it's actually harder than you think to put all that stuff together and engineer it all without being detected.
1: And this is exactly what I always. This is exactly where I like to go with this. Why aren't there more Oklahoma City bombings? Right, exactly. You can look up or or the Beirut bombing. There's a really nice book if you want to like get like picked up by Homeland Security or TSA when you're on a plane. Uh, Mike Davis, Buddha's Wagon: A History of the Car Bomb. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really fascinating. Is it the same Mike Davis that wrote the City of Quartz? Same guy. Interesting. It's a good book. Okay. Yeah, right? Now you're sold. I, I, <laughs> I am sold. I, I, was, I, I mean, I've read
2: <laughs> City of Quartz, and it's very
1: interesting. So, yeah. like, I'm, I'm very intrigued now. It's about the appropriation of civilian... Uh, basically vehicles as weapons and so he sees 9-11 as being a part of this using a a, a 747 as a bomb is for him uh, a straight line to the original wall street bombing of 19 whatever 1920 something right. which was a, a horse a, a horse-drawn wagon full of explosives um you can look up and this book describes in these reports on like what exactly mcveigh did what exactly was done in beirut beirut was cleverer than what mcveigh did much bigger explosion um uh beirut bombing was uh, steal a garbage truck step one okay there's a lot of those around uh step two fill it with uh, uh anfo right ammonium nitrate and fuel oil in the right proportion which you can look up online you can look up because the government published it in the 1970s or whatever uh fine and then here's the sweetener throw in a couple tanks of liquid oxygen and that's tamped by the garbage truck, set that off, that by itself is enough to pick up that embassy and move it a foot or two and set it back down, which, you know, tremendous damage. Yeah. And it may be even more than, I don't remember exactly how far it moved, but they actually, it just actually picked it up and moved it. And that's really low tech. You can get the, you go to Home Depot, you can go to a fuel, like there's not that many ingredients. And so I tell my students this and I say, why, why do you think this is? Why, why don't we have more of these? And, Sometimes they'll say, well, maybe there's a lot of... Okay, if you don't care about getting caught, like, they do tag the fertilizer now, and if you use it, they'll know. And they probably have some checks out there. A guy buys too much fuel oil, too much fertilizer, or whatever. But you could imagine gaming that system, right? That's not that complicated. Um, it's clear that the, like, security people are worried about this. The only time I ever got yelled at by the Capitol Police when I lived in D.C. was when I was not insufficiently getting out of the street because they wanted to put up all these barriers. Why? Because a garbage truck is going by. You, you, They will not let a garbage truck go. into the Capitol. they have physical barriers and this is exactly why they garbage trucks are giant tamped question marks uh, for these people so you could do it and then i and they say well i don't know it's probably not the information that keeps anybody from doing it it's probably not even access to the materials and then i tell the students you're really educated people you're why don't you go to protests?" why don't you do terrible things? And they say, I don't have time for any of that. I don't, Hey, I'm a good person. Yeah, yeah, fine. Whatever. Okay, good. Uh, (laughs) but like, why well, I don't even just go to protests. Well, I'm really busy. What? Why are you really busy? Because I'm in engineering school. Well, why are you in engineering school? Oh, because I want to get a good job. Oh, why is that? Because I want to have a future. Like, most people are on a path that does not take them in any way other than maybe like a daydream towards doing terrible, terrible things to other people because you're invested in a whole world. And there are places in the world where there are a lot of bombings, and they suck. And there are not that many opportunities in them. They're called like Iraq and Syria, and like they are what we consider to be war zones. But if you are in a place where that's actually common, that's a sign that like massive social problems all across the spectrum. And fortunately we don't live in that world. And I always tell the students, this is the last piece. You should be thinking about everything that you can do to make sure you don't live in that world. And that the world you live in does not become that world because those people didn't think they lived in that world either until they did. Yeah, that's a good point. So there was a, there was a question that we wanted to ask you. Actually, we talked about
2: this before we started recording, but, um, you know, there's the, again, under the Obama administration, uh, it was announced this, uh, massive modernization, uh, project of the, of the nuclear forces, uh, 1 trillion over, I think, 30 years or something like that, if I'm not mistaken and those numbers, um, can you tell us more about like, what is that, uh, what is that project about? Like, what is it intended to achieve? Why do we need to do this?
1: So modernization is, uh, the reason it's come up in the Obama administration, it, it precedes Obama, it will go past Obama. It, it's almost like, I don't want to say trans-partisan, but it it it's it's one of those things where Obama gets a lot of flack for agreeing to this because he said he was anti well, not In this
2: particular case, I'm not even like, saying, like, whatever, it's Obama's
0: like, fault or anything. It, just, it, 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 it
2: gained a lot of prominence it, under Obama, maybe for that
0: reason. I'll but. go farther. I mean, I think this is yet another way that Obama disappointed people who believed that Obama was not... The person of his Nobel Prize. Well, speech, that's true. But an Obama who uh, tr- transcended traditional uh, bipartisanship on on foreign policy questions.
1: He, here's how it basically breaks. It's basically a timing question, and that's the no matter who is the president is going to be faced with this question at both ten years ago and ten years into the future and whatever. Okay, uh, uh, the United States has a nuclear weapons force. Okay. What does that force consist of? It consists of uh, the triad of the submarines, uh, and, and uh, which have missiles on them, which have warheads in them. It consists of the ICBMs and the land bases, the Minuteman 3s, which again have our bases run with people that have missiles in them that have warheads in them. And then lastly, you have the bomber force, which is to say you have um, a few planes, you know, notably the the B-2, right, the stealth bomber, uh, which uh, is uh, now a pretty old plane, and it drops bombs that have warheads in them. Every one of those components that I mentioned has a shelf life. It's technology. All technology has a shelf life, right? Uh, if you try to, uh, you you can, with a lot of effort and a lot of money, uh, still drive around an old VW Bug from the 1970s. And a few people do. Uh, they probably live in really not the Northeast because this is a climate that will eat your car. But like, let's imagine it happens. Great. Uh, but even those people who are willing to put all that money into it know that uh, it's A, very expensive, and B, reliability is not perfect, right? You're, you're just never going to have that thing go. So this is just... And we can all just take as a given, technology decays over time, hooray, second law of thermodynamics, everything decays over time, right? Uh, it takes work to keep things from decaying over time, and then even then, especially complex things, we're not talking about you know Stonehenge or the pyramids, we're talking about a really pretty complicated piece of machinery. So like the warheads themselves, for example, which are... Uh, layers of both electronic sort of capabilities that are sort of tricked out for various uh, parameters Uh, uh, survivability long life they have things in them like radioactive batteries okay those are not like standard off the shelf components The core of the weapon itself is a chunk of radioactive material, right? Which is self-irradiating and irradiating everything else over some amount of time with neutrons, uh, gamma rays, things like that. Uh, And some of these materials are actually pretty exotic. So they're, again, not every day. You're talking about like a, a hemisphere of beryllium, that's toxic. That's chemically reactive in certain ways. You're talking about lithium, lithium has its own properties, as we know. Um, you're talking about uh, some of these substances, which are classified, so we only know them by their exotic names. One of them, uh, is called Fog Bank. Uh, another one is called Sea Breeze. I love <laughs> the. They feel like like <laughs> they feel like paint colors, yeah, that. right, so. like, like <laughs> yeah, or like we're like perfumes or something. Right. <laughs> you get the Fog Bank uh, soap for the shower. You feel like you are from like Maine, right? Uh, uh, or or, or the East Bay or and, something. And these are classified alloys? No. What they are probably are like aerogels. Ah. Uh, they are substances. They're called interstage materials. And they are substances that are at least partially transparent to radiation, but maybe a little bit. The, the idea, as far as we can tell, is that they guide the radiation from one part of the weapon to the other to compress for the fusion like this so but they're weird they're toxic they are not common they're actually so off the shelf that the united states forgot how to make fog bank it didn't write it down adequately and it went to make more and it realized it had destroyed the entire production line and how to do it and they had to reinvent a fog bank substitute at the cost of many million dollars so this is again we don't even know what fog bank is but it is clearly not like something that is used in any other context right so that's the warhead that's not even the missiles which have all sorts of complicated fuels that have all sorts of complicated you know uh, uh, parameters or the submarines and a submarine is is essentially like, I'm, I'm doing a consulting on this, uh, uh, for the intrepid museum and they have a, a first generation nuclear weapons submarine, the growler and it, getting inside that and talking to the people who worked on it, a submarine is not even like, it's not like a machine. It's like a living animal hybrid of human beings, comp- you know, machines, technologies. It requires enormous amounts of maintenance to keep from like sinking to the bottom of ocean and killing everybody inside of it. And sometimes they did that anyway. Um, So these are complicated technologies. When were they built? Uh, Most of them were developed in the 80s and deployed in the 80s. A few were deployed in the 90s. Uh, We haven't built new nuclear weapons since the late 1980s. We haven't tested any nuclear weapons since 1992. Um, We are monitoring all of these things, of course, right? So the warheads themselves, we we are looking at what happens to plutonium as it ages over time. Well, there's ways you can do science on that. There's ways you can imagine, okay, this thing's going to get brittle. Well, let's just swap in a new part. Um, but as you do this, uh, it, the labs are more or less confident that the warheads will work. But there's this uncertainty curve, which is going up and up. And, and so another way to think about this is imagine you had that 1970s VW bug and it was kept in your barn and you were not allowed to start it. You were, however, allowed to replace any part on it and do any test on any component, but you could never put the key in and turn it and see if the engine will turn over. Fine. In 40 years, what do you think the odds are with all of your maintenance that it will actually start on the first turn? So, you
0: know, in a funny way, actually, one of the things modernization enables you to do, because in your analogy, I might say, well, you know what, I want two or three VW bugs mm-hmm. to make sure that one of them starts. Uh, whereas modernization, I might be comfortable with one new Toyota Celica. There's probably not as much carrying capacity kind of thing. Other the, new
1: vehicle. the problem is it, with the with the nukes is you can't start the like Celica either. so this is getting you into a question of also this is there's a danger to modernization which it could introduce its own uncertainties that might only be resolved by you can test the missiles you can test the bombs but you you, uh, like the shapes shapes of the bombs Uh, you cannot actually set them off you can do clever things where you take out the plutonium and put in like lead or something and see analyze it post-op but we don't do testing anymore and so that Closes off certain knowledge capabilities Do the Russians also not do testing? Nobody's done any, or I mean, not nobody. North Korea. We, we,
2: uh, when you say testing, do you mean like you mean like
1: live testing with actual nuclear weapons, or like what kind of testing? I mean are we nuclear talking about? testing. So okay. specifically setting off a nuclear warhead. Right. Okay. And by the way, for live testing—we've only one time ever mated a, 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 a warhead to a missile. And then tested both at the same time once. So there's already some uncertainty in the system for reliability sure. on these things. But right, we haven't tested uh, a, a nuclear war- weapon since 1992. We did not. We signed, but did not ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. But us and the Russians both agreed to not test them. We're not bound by treaty to do this, but it's been a, a norm um, for 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 some time now, and people. It would be a lot of political brouhaha, internationally and domestic, to start retesting things. We do do things what they call zero year yield nuclear tests, uh, where basically you you set it up so you don't actually get more that you don't get any kind of significant nuclear output, but maybe you learn something about how the weapon goes off and things. So anyway, the uncertainties are there. The delivery vehicles get old. Great. Uh, our submarines are going to need to be replaced at some point unless you want them to start having more and more trouble and not be as reliable. When will that point be? I don't know, 20 years, something like that. They'll probably last out through 2040 or something like that. Cool. How long does it take to deploy a new submarine fleet? Oh, about 50 and 20 years. This is expensive. This requires research. requires. Um, so this is the modernization problem. If we don't put money in now, if we don't start paying a lot of money because that's always been the most expensive part is the missiles, the submarines, even the planes, not so much the warheads. So the warheads, its own question. Let's just imagine we believe the warheads will still be great forever and ever, which not clear that that's the case. But let's just imagine we still have all these submarines. We have all this expensive stuff. If we don't put those orders in now, they will not be ready by the time the other ones need to be phased out. And so this is a real bind if you actually want to continue to have a nuclear posture or a nuclear force. And it forces you to make a lot of commitments. Now there are some people who are clearly on the anti-nuclear side who oppose modernization on the grounds that you will de facto end up with no nuclear weapons, essentially, or only have a very limited force because you just won't have any replacements and you're going to have to shut them all down. That's a tactic is that, you know, they don't often say that's what they're trying to do, but that's clearly what they're, some of yeah. them are trying to do. Uh, there are some who have said very explicitly, like, great, let's put a new order for submarines and let's just do that. That's Submarines are great. We love submarines. Let's ditch the land-based ICBMs. Land-based ICBMs uh, promote more of this use-it-or-lose-it attitude because you can target them. They're very expensive. Um... Uh, uh, they require large bases. Right,
0: they're homing beacons for opponents. They're homing
1: right. beacons for opponents. They mean that if if those get hit, the fallout is going to go east and destroy all of your uh, not only your cities on the even if cities aren't targeted, you're going to do huge damage to cities from fallout. But you're also going to do huge damage to uh, agriculture because that's a lot right, of right. The, they're all uh, in the wilderness. plain states, right? Right. So, yeah. Uh, So this raises a lot of long-term questions. It it brings to the fore a lot of nuclear strategy questions that are tough. And what the Obama administration has did on this, and if you want to criticize them for this, you can, many have, is essentially said, well, we're going to keep things more or less the status quo. We're going to bet on the status quo. And that's going to be very expensive, to be sure. But we're going to need new everything. They didn't do the harder thing of saying let's bet on a smaller stockpile. We're not in communications with the Russians on this. they're modernizing their own fleet in the same way. You could imagine this as a way of rethinking that question of what kind of nuclear strategy we want to have, what kind of posture, what kind of weapons as far there probably were discussions of this behind the scenes but basically everything that came out said we're gonna basically do take the conservative route which is to say do exactly what we were doing before, which means you're re, Furbishing three whole legs of a triad all at once you do that in one big order especially when you haven't been doing any of that work and there's your trillion there's your trillion dollars over so many years so i don't know what the answer is sometimes it's framed as just being like this is just some sort of military industrial complex cash grab and maybe aspects of it are maybe you could do some of these things on the cheap right Uh, maybe you could imagine revisioning these things as not some, you know, not needing a fifth generation, whatever. Um, But the way in which our system is set up, there's a high priority to saying, well, if you're going to replace it, you can't replace it with the same thing, right. especially since and the other guy isn't.
0: Frankly, I mean, I'm not... The cost is very high, but, you know, it is, I think, actually cheaper than the Joint Strike Fighter that no one actually wants. And so... That's um, a low bar, though. <laughs> yeah. It's the most expensive weapon program in American history. But that being said, like, I, I don't think it's the cost that's irritating. I do think it's exactly that commitment to uh, rejuvenate the triad in a way that... Um, even if you were committed to maintaining this very high level of American posture in terms of its nuclear weapons, which is unclear that it's necessary at all, um, you you wouldn't have to do so in such a way, right? And and I I do I don't know I think it is one of the very frustrating things about the Obama administration. You might expect from again from a Trump um, something. Very or we could
1: much... even lower to a Bush or something like that, right? Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, the continuity. <laughs> Although I I heard uh, and we should. I, I, did Reagan actually propose uh, dropping all nukes and the Soviets were basically like, yes, if you also give us SDI, which didn't work, and Reagan was like, no?
1: It's a little more complicated than that, but we can talk about that. But. All right.
0: Cabin that, because I want to get there. I, I do think one of the disappointing things about Obama, especially if, like, you know, uh, if history continues on the course it's on, I think we may look at that as an inflection point where, oh, there was a possibility. Because now that you've locked this in, the next time you may have a president who might reconsider that. I mean, it could be in like 2040.
1: No, I, I, and I'm, there's a lot of frustration amongst the non-proliferation people, the nuclear people with Obama for exactly this reason. A lot of rhetoric, um, a lot of probably good intentions by any definition. Uh, but he ended up in the recent history. He cut fewer nuclear weapons than, uh, uh, either of the Bushes, and the first Bush, you know, he had a, he, he was the end of the cold war. He got to draw a lot, right. but, but George W. Bush down. dropped the arsenal by 50%. And he was very quiet about it. Cause that is not a like Republican talking point. We got rid of half of the nuclear weapons, uh, but he did. And Obama didn't. And you can say, is it cause he was in a, is it a Nixon goes to China thing, right? Where like only a Republican can cut the national, this nuclear arsenal by half and not get called a, you know, betrayer. Uh, or is it because at that level you're starting to get to actually hard questions about what you're going to cut which may be the case also i mean it, it's it, once you've gotten down to that bit shaving off another cutting it again by half would be very hard to do without actually closing off legs of the triad which by the way if you close off a leg of the triad you're not only like decreasing the number of missiles you're decreasing number of bases and this is The congressmen don't want you to do that. They don't want you to, like, defund one of their major military bases because that's providing a huge amount of money in these states like Montana or something like that. Right. Although
0: Jerry and I have talked about this before. This is part of the submerged state and it's also part of military Keynesianism where the only sort of fiscal stimulus that we're allowed or spending that you're allowed to do that, you know, satisfies both parties is, again, this sort of, you know, spending inefficiently through military.
1: Yeah. No, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but you can see why this is resisted. And under the cloak of national security, but there's more stuff going on. And in fact, these people have resisted in really amusing ways, kind of like the Joint Strike Fighter. But some of these bases, uh, ba- essentially, the military identified them at various times of the past as being totally closable, like totally unnecessary. And Congress kept them alive, and not only kept them alive, but said you have to staff them with people. And so it's people just like standing around for no reason because Congress does in not. In North want... Dakota, it's yeah, not right. like the most comfortable place <laughs> to stand around for no reason. Yeah. To, to come back to your Reagan, did he almost yeah, yeah. disarm? It's Gorbachev who went first. So Gorbachev goes to Reagan and says, Let's just do it. Let's just get rid of all of them. Why not? We could totally do this. And Reagan says, Great. That's a great idea. We should do this. And you know, this is like, you, know, the, the exciting, you imagine the, the exciting times happening on, you know, like, Hey, hey, do it. And Gorbachev says, And we'll get rid of SDI too. And Reagan says, I don't want to get rid of SDI. He says, You have to get rid of SDI, right? This is the Star Wars yeah. uh, anti ballistic missile space program thing and he says eh, you gotta get rid of it it's destabilizing it's like could be a weapon in and out of itself
0: did no one punch Reagan at that point and go it doesn't work it, it literally it, it's
1: it, kind it, of it's that's wear. the most bizarre that's not why they would punch him they punch him for saying he's getting rid of the nuke so that's the kind of people to, yeah
2: does. to me like this is the most bizarre hill to choose to defend because like, without nuclear weapons, what do you need SDI for? Like, SDI is
1: for everybody else, right? Everybody like else Chinese, what? The Chinese, the like, the, oh, the okay, all the okay. nuclear power. This is to make sure never they're a problem again.
0: But you can imagine a world where we in the Soviet Union disarmed, the UK and France would surely disarm. Like, you would have regional powers who had dozens Not of The French nukes. don't do that. And their dozens of <laughs> nukes would, would not make them a threat, but they would also be international pariah in part because of the example,
1: right? The, like The best part about this is that Reagan says, Corby, buddy, I will share with you the technology. It won't be proprietary. We'll give it to everyone. It'll be this like universal great thing. And Gorbachev says you know i'm sorry ronnie i i I feel your heart in this but your country won't share milking equipment with us i am pretty sure you're not going to give us space weapons like i'm pretty (laughs) sure right like i just highly
2: proprietary uh milking equipment that we cannot possibly divulge the the most
0: successful sdi test ever right still missed by like miles right
1: there's very yeah there's there's variations and and they can set up tests where sometimes they hit the thing if they know the thing is coming and they, you know, and they make a big deal. They don't tell you usually about the test in which they miss the thing. Totally. It, it's a sad hill to go down on in part because it doesn't work and gorbachev knew it didn't work i mean this is the funny part reagan thought it would work because he had sort of infinite faith in these kinds of things Gorbachev's science people said it's not gonna work it's not gonna work at all but gorbachev knows that if reagan keeps going with that his military is going to put pressure on him to fund these stupid projects and to do more and more sorts of things along these lines so it's that's the missed moment life.
0: yeah
1: it's, I, it's worth pointing out that neither of these people had actually, like, total power over their own countries and these decisions. And it is not clear that even if they had agreed to get rid of nuclear weapons, Congress would have let Reagan do this, that the Politburo would have let Gorbachev do this, that the military wouldn't have used this as the excuse to get rid of them, you know, anyway. Like, so there's a way in which this can be over... You know, I don't know if they actually have the capability to unilaterally disarm, though the president is in the United States can cut the arsenal by half in certain types of categories without anybody asking. So
2: I think even, you know, again, this is one of those things where even like the assumption of a public position already sets a kind of baseline for what you might be able to expect. So even if nothing went, even if nothing had happened, uh, if there had been such an agreement, you know retrospectively we could look back on and say okay well you know this is something that we tried to come into but we you know couldn't quite get there but maybe we can get there now
1: i agree uh, and, and it's it's too bad and it's especially you know bitter because it's sdi is the hill they went down on and that was just such a boondoggle it's
0: like a unicorn being the hill you go down on. <laughs> that's
1: right. <laughs> right let's stop racing horses yes but you have to give me that unicorn you've got in the barn <laughs> no <laughs> So, you know, I don't know what the future is. I don't know how you get from here to there. Uh, I've talked to people who do a lot of work in, like, nonproliferation policy and treaty preparation. And, you know, under Obama, they did all—they were trying, 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 and not a lot of progress. World, uh, both domestically and internationally, was not right for that. And I said to them after this election, you know, what do you think, the odd—you know, What are the odds that any of this is going to add up to a hill of beans? Why even do this? And the most sensible reply I got from uh, a friend of mine who works at Princeton is he said, well, yeah, we're not expecting a lot of uh, uh, progress in the next years. Even if Hillary had been elected, they would not expect a lot of progress. That's not the international situation to look like disarmament was around the corner in any way. But... Uh, you have to do the work now so that if you do by chance find yourself in a weird, anomalous moment of history in which there is an opportunity where somehow, for whatever reason, you would not have predicted that Reagan would suddenly be in the position to do this. You would not have predicted that Gorbachev would have ever become the head of the USSR. And, you know, this is just weird, contingent. Is there not, you know, there's no good reason for either of these things to happen. And yet it kind of almost happened. And so you want to be in a place where if it's almost going to happen you can just roll stuff out. You can have all the ideas hashed out. You can have all the plans because if you get stuck on like well how will we actually make this work and oh well, what if they cheated by hiding you know testing nuclear weapons on the other side of the moon right. If you get stuck in, in this sort of if, if, if hurdles are allowed to come up then they'll kill it at the one moment in which it could work. Whereas if you have everything ready then boom 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 you can imagine getting things in place before you've even realized that you've really done it.
0: I I think we're probably close to a close. I wonder if there's anything you
1: wanted to roll out. Yes.
2: Yeah. So the last question I wanted to ask you is that, you know, you, uh, just recently announced that, uh, that, uh, on, on Facebook that you and other places as well, I assume that you, uh, have got this grant partially from the MacArthur Foundation and from other sources as well. I think maybe what the Carnegie Endowment, is that right? It's it's
1: like a complicated funding explanation, but it
2: doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm just throwing out these names to tell everybody how awesome you are. Uh, But if you could tell us about um, the project that,
1: uh, that this is funding and like what you're going to be working on so the project and just to clarify it it's a and this is like there's a mouthful of a sentence which is why it's it's funded by the carnegie corporation of new york as part of a joint effort of funding by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and the MacArthur Foundation. So basically Carnegie and MacArthur announced that they had pooled their resources and were going to fund a bunch of grants if people had good ideas. And then the way it worked is each one picked the grants that they would actually fund. So they want both to be credited, but it's Carnegie that's really funding us. So just whatever. Yeah, uh, so the project is called Reinventing Civil Defense. You can learn more at reinventingcivildefense.org or you can go to my blog. Uh, uh, And it's... It's an interesting project. The basic idea, uh, civil defense during the cold war, you know, duck and cover fallout shelters. It's about what measures can everyday civilians and citizens do in the event of nuclear war. And it got a lot of flack for obvious reasons as the nuclear arsenals got larger, as the idea of nuclear war got bigger and closer, the idea that hiding under your desk seems kind of inherently, uh, undermatched compared to the size of the threat that would be coming, uh, some of those criticisms are legit, some of them are less valid. It depends on what you assume the goal is. If the goal is to save every single person, obviously it doesn't work. If the goal is to save people in the suburbs, some of that stuff actually would work uh, to some degree. Uh, we're not doing the uh, old-style civil defense, uh, but we are thinking about what would this look like in the future? What would this look like in the present? If if what you are worried about are, say, single detonations, either from nuclear terrorism or, say, uh, North Korea or something like that, uh, would there be value in having people uh, know uh, what they ought to do in that event? Uh there are interesting parameters to that. So for example, a low yield nuclear weapon, say 15 kilotons in a place like Washington, DC, nuclear terrorism of some sort, right? If people do the wrong thing as a result of that, the survivors, they could end up being uh, what they call preventable casualties. So for example, most people, uh, if I ask them, what would you do, Jerry, what would you do if a nuclear weapon went off in Midtown? Um, I would not do anything. I would hide in the basement of this building that is actually the the, the right answer Jerry. Good job <laughs> Bing, you get a point all you're right. alive. Uh, a lot of people say I get the hell out of here
2: yeah I mean i also I also have the advantage of a, having a physics
1: degree so yeah. I know a little bit about this most people say or or these are like future potential issues they say i'm gonna go get my kid from school and then I'm gonna get the go hell out and all of that is the wrong answer if, if you join the multitude of other people trying to get the hell out of here, especially if you get into a car, you are potentially exposing yourself to a lot of radiation that if you waited four or five hours, you are not exposing yourself to uh, quite that level. You might be still exposing yourself to some, but it's the difference between a radiation that sort of kills you uh, either soon or within a few weeks versus a radiation that, say, increases your long-term leukemia risk by 2%, which is not great, but is not the same you know, category of problem at all.
0: And the basement's better than a stairwell in the like middle floor of a tall building or something?
1: There, You can look this up. There are different protection factors. Inside, in general, better. Um, closer to the core or center of a building, better. Um, underground, usually better. Depends on whether there's vents pumping things in there. What you really... Imagine the radiation as just toxic dust. That's the problem. Uh, uh, you want to stay away from the toxic dust. Stay away from the windows. Stay away from the roof where it's going to settle. Things like that. So generally, the most century part. But also the basement works out well for that too. So either one. You're, you're, that's better than nothing. Um, turn off the air conditioners. Don't you know? Don't drink the rainwater. Whatever. Right. Yeah. So that's not intuitive to people anymore. Right. That's a non-intuitive if you understand the mechanism, it's totally intuitive. Like, oh, I see. Danger dust will be coming down. And if I'm in my car your car protects you not at all from that. And if you get stuck on the George Washington Bridge and it's dusting you, great. You've now just exposed yourself and killed yourself without maybe and, a dog. and your
0: kid who you picked up from
1: school. And your kid. And your dog. And your wife. Whatever. You know, what who else you want to kill on this in this scenario? Whatever. Um So there's some potential advantage. Uh, How much advantage? Uh, The the Livermore people calculated that in a terrorist attack on Washington, D.C., the number of preventable casualties is in the order of tens of thousands. So that's a significant number. That's a lot of people would be already dead, to be sure. That would be terrible. Totally terrible thing. But, you know.
0: In terms of that, I mean, so someone puts together the 50 or 60 kilos of enriched uranium yeah. and sets it off in Times Square. Yeah. Uh, what's the, I know we could just go to NukeMap app and yeah. plug this in, but what's the point at which being in the basement matters versus, you know, you didn't survive the initial explosion.
1: If you're like in Times Square, I'm sorry, you're probably not going to survive. That's just not, there isn't a lot you can do about that. That's just one of those things. If you're, a little further away from Times Square, then suddenly those probabilities change quite a bit. And it depends on what kind of building you're in and uh, uh, you know what, whether you do or don't take steps. Just being in a building already helps you a lot. Um,
0: but, like, for example, here we're 35 blocks
1: more. We are not going to be affected by the immediate uh, 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 effects. Yeah, we are outside of the range, especially with something like Times Square, where the buildings are going to have some kind of shielding property in general, the blasts, because they're just... They're big. It's not like they're not small houses or something. Um, again, that doesn't mean you're in the clear. The radiation effects definitely could affect you up here. No question, um, depending on which way the wind goes, which can be hard to tell even if you have a windsock or something like that. So, But out here, you'll know something happened. Uh, you. Blast waves can be pretty tricky, especially in an urban area, things like this. Maybe you get broken windows. Please don't run to the window, right? Like things of that nature. But you're outside of the thermal. You're outside of the blast. Again, depending on where you are, that may or may not be true, where the bomb goes off. You can't predict that ahead of time. If the bomb goes off in your building, you're toast. I'm sorry. You're toast, right? Like there's no—none of these things will guarantee anything, but they do uh, act as a probabilities. So anyway— We're not necessarily... There are people who do these kind of calculations and things. What we are interested in doing is thinking about... If you want to message people, how should it look? How should it look in the 21st century? Should it look like uh, uh, cartoons with a talking turtle... And a little song that you play in elementary school classrooms in 1951? Probably not. I mean, most people don't respond that well to that these days. They see this as condescending. They see it with suspicion. Should the government be doing it? That's an open question. The government may not be a very good messenger anymore for risk perception because since the 1970s, American uh, trusting of government has dropped dramatically. And since God knows 2001, the amount of conspiracy theorists out there have gone up sort of exponentially. I don't know. Remember, uh, you you probably remember that uh, Homeland Security, after 9-11, gave people instruction on how to, like, tape their windows shut in the event of, like, a biological attack. And this was lampooned, just, like, laughed at as the dumbest, silliest thing ever. It's not the dumbest, silliest thing ever, but uh, people were not interested in hearing that message from Homeland Security. Would it be different if academics had told them to do this? Would it be different if, you know, respected community leaders? I don't know. Fox News and Jenny McCarthy. Fox and Jenny McCarthy who do motivate people on risk perception things potentially in the totally wrong direction, right? So this is the kind of questions we want to ask. There's one corollary that I want to add. It's not just about the like saving the lives bit, which is if that happened, great, like happy to save lives, right? But like, again, depends on what you think the probability of these things occurring. I think it's non-zero, but uh, I don't know what it is. Um, most Americans under a certain age, uh, uh, you know, mid-30s, 40s, things like that, have very little conception of nuclear weapons as being part of the world in which they live in, except in this sort of vague headline sense, Right. Uh, that makes it very hard to get people engaged in these issues. It makes it very hard for them to become political issues. Modernization is not a mass political issue. People are not writing to their senators saying, "I really d- don't want land-based ICBMs. I'm okay with the submarine back." But like, this is like obviously not in the lexicon. Uh, there's not a lot of support, say... Our president famously didn't know what the triad was. Doesn't know what the triad is, knows that uranium is very bad, but that's about it, right? Um, And it's not necessarily about formal education, though. That's part of it, right? I want people... I'd like it if people knew more about radiation physics, but, like, they're not gonna. That's okay. Like, you gotta accept that. But they do know about a lot of pretty complicated scientific terms that they are not uh, theoretically very adept at. So my favorite example is uh, germ theory. Guy in the street believes in germ theory. Does he know what germs are? Does he know what a virus is? Does he know the difference between a virus and a bacteria? Does he know why we believe in germ theory and why, like for most of human history, people didn't believe in germ theory? Does he know about the kind of experiments that took to establish it? Does he know about vectors? Does he know about mucus? Does he know about rhinoviruses versus... No, he doesn't know about any of this stuff. But you know what he knows? He knows that if he's on the subway and he touches a surface that's kind of gross, he should wash his hands before putting them in his grubby mouth, right? Because otherwise he's gonna get a cold. He knows that if somebody sneezes, that's a potential vector for infecting him. He knows that when you drink from the water fountain, you don't put your lips on the thing, right? That's gross, right? He may, if he's young, I'm just using a he here, it could be a woman. My students are hilarious at this. If people interact with younger people, watch how they sneeze if you're over a certain age. They sneeze into their elbows, which I find really strange. I don't sneeze in my elbow. Uh, I sneeze into my grubby fingers like a disgusting person, right? Uh,
0: they sneeze into their elbows, so they avoid then there is your hand to touch people. Exactly.
1: And they don't think about it. They just do it. Like it's something everybody learned, which if you're in the group that didn't get taught this, you're like, how did you all? I am definitely not in the group that was taught. this. They all right into the elbow. Uh, Uh, Yeah. Weird. Totally smart. And I, like to talk to the students, I say, well, I sneeze in my hands and they give me this look like horror. And then I go over and pick up their 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 water bottle and then put it back down and they look horror, right? And I say, well, what's the problem? It's like, oh, there's germs in your hands and you're like, okay. I just want to point out, you believe in these things called germs. This is not because somebody rigorously proved it to you. It's because of these practices of everyday life Uh, it's because sometimes infrastructure, so that water fountain where it shoots the thing into the air, that's called a bubbler, was invented in the 19th century because the alternative for getting water on a playground was drinking out of a hose. And of course, we look at that now. We look at that with horror in the same way they look at us when we sneeze on our hands. So this is just, uh, public health is a great example of the ways in which It's not about necessarily formal education, but teaching people about like the kinds of risks that exist in their lives and the ways in which they have some stake in some of the outcomes to some degree, not 100%, but to some degree. Uh, automobiles, getting hit by buses, fires, earthquakes, tornadoes. There's like a panoply of things. I'm really fascinated. My wife is a high school teacher. The active shooter drill, right? This was just starting when I was uh, in elementary school. I'm from Stockton, California. We had one of the very first uh, school shootings. Uh, A guy with an AK-47, not my school, but in my town, went to the uh, Grover Cleveland Elementary School and shot a bunch of kids some sort of Vietnam flashback thing. I don't know. Uh, Big, a lot of attention. I think Michael Jackson visited the school afterwards, like national level stuff, right? And so my school had one of these early versions of the active shooter drills, which were not very, I remember them telling us, if you blew three short whistles on the playground, you were supposed to hit the deck and roll away. And I just imagine this in retrospect, all these little kids Kids. hitting the deck, and then this would just, maybe the the goals are just like below the mind of whoever was trying to shoot, you know, what is going on? Uh, But today they're very elaborate. My wife's active shooter drills are about like, to lock the door and get in this position and you have to get where they can't see you with the lights are off. And they have these people come over and say, I can see you you're dead. Right. And they, you know, it's these very, and they train for this all the time. This is part of the panoply of risk of the modern United States, which is horrific, but okay. Right. Uh, uh, our question, nuclear used to be part of that panoply of risk. It has been removed from that curriculum, even though ironically, it's the reason a lot of that stuff exists in the first place. Uh, uh, FEMA, Uh, is an outgrowth of the federal civil defense administration it's originally that kind of nuclear stuff led to training for tornadoes and
0: yeah and in my neighborhood so there are still fallout shelters they're still fallout shelter signs they're not they're they're
1: not well maintained unfortunately so they don't have like what they're supposed to have in them like water and things like that so it may be death traps but uh uh, but they're there right they were designated as that by this agency as being a So one of the things we're interested in is if looking into the question of, should you just be reintroducing this into training anyway? Because if you take it out, people lose that sense of the risk. Uh, civil defense was kind of shut down in part by well-meaning people on the sort of anti-nuclear side of the spectrum, which I guess we can say is the left side of the spectrum because it usually is, uh, under the belief that it made people complacent about nuclear war and thus increased the risk of nuclear war. Um, I don't think that has anything to do with nuclear terrorism. I don't think people being, you know, it's a different calculus, obviously. Uh, And I'm not sure that was right even at the time. But one of the results that it did do is it made people uh, not think about nuclear weapons anymore. And that's exactly the opposite of sort of what was intended. So we are looking at ways in this project. This is a very long explanation of what the project is. Unfortunately, it's it's a crazy sounding project. You say, uh, I tell my colleagues, oh, I'm doing reinventing civil defense. And the eyes get really big. Like, really? Why? And I'm, okay, let me lay it out for They're you. They're all thinking of that cartoon turtle. They are, <laughs> they are. And the cartoon turtle. you remember the cartoon turtle? we don't necessarily think about these things rationally like we're yeah. not rational beings like there's no reason that a talking duck should sell you insurance and yet he does right like this this, this works out
0: uh, it's gonna be a snapchat Peyton Manning thing. Yeah, into right. a basement
1: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway this is the, uh, the the project is to think about what this might look like in the 21st century we have a couple of years to do it uh, we have $500,000 it's not just me it's me uh, two of my colleagues at the Stevens Institute of Technology where I worked in engineering school uh, one of them is a a political psychologist named Kristen Carl. She's great. She's really good at setting up uh, uh, empirical tests for this kind of thing. So we can say, you and I, oh, with, does the does the turtle video work, or should it be a different kind of video? Or should it be a, uh, I don't know, a CGI gecko or something like that, right? Why not? Well, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Let's actually like set up an experiment with a subject pool and get like just some basic numbers, right? Like we don't have to like guess. Unfortunately, during most of the Cold War, what the United States would do is roll out something really quick, and then if they did any evaluation at all, it was after the fact, and it usually concluded, uh, "We should have checked this before we rolled it all out." And you know, and then they would just do it again. You know, and we don't have to do that. We're not the government, and the government is not doing this uh, at the moment. Um, And also questions like, uh, is there a role for sort of new technologies in this? Uh, What what can VR do for helping people have the lived experience? Maybe it helps a lot. Maybe it helps not at all. Uh, Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just a gimmick. Maybe it's actually a new way of creating new experiences. I don't know the answer. I don't do anything in VR. Uh, We can not only create some of these things, do sort of prototypes, but then also, again, a real big chunk of us, find out what it does to people. The seeing a nuclear, you know, imagine nuke map in VR. The seeing a 30,000-foot mushroom cloud in three dimensions change people's perceptions about the scope of these kinds of weapons? I don't know. Seems worth looking into. So fortunately, the funders agreed, and this is our project. And if people who are listening have interesting ideas for kinds of things they should you know, we could be doing, they should feel free to visit the website and also get in touch where a lot of the money we have is meant to be funding interesting little ideas. And we are pretty open-minded. I mean, could be academics, could be artists, could be people who don't do any of these, live in any of those worlds, but have an interesting idea. We're looking into a lot of things. So it's a pretty fun project. It's um, it's definitely the project with the weirdest name I've ever been associated with and i'm really pl- proud about that fact and uh, uh and i think it's going to produce some well
2: this has been wonderful alex thank you so much for uh joining us uh it's been a real pleasure uh it's definitely uh definitely longer uh than our our normal episodes but we'll probably chop this one into into two parts and um yeah it's been I, awesome
1: thanks so much what my, my parting note uh, thank you both of you this has been really fun my parting note uh, uh the physicist edward teller was once asked by a reporter uh where you should be if a nuclear weapon goes off and he said uh standing next to somebody who said what was that <laughs> and uh, i <laughs> thought that was always a good answer so <laughs> so take that advice
2: <laughs> all right listeners well thanks and we will uh see you uh hopefully in two weeks um
0: I don't know what let's figure that out in the title and you can re-record uh, <laughs> a, a, like we'll see you in two weeks because I yeah okay I don't know I'll be there yeah
2: um my 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 thought was like I was I had this idea that of doing like I, I think I mentioned this before of doing sort of like another history retrospective on like post-soviet russian history oh yeah I actually think that's um, really great um, so I don't know
0: if we want to maybe think about that or you um, could make a nomenclatera pun it's all good I like that I like that idea a lot do you want to do that then okay
2: um Thank you listeners for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this and we will hopefully see you in two weeks with another uh, sort of history lesson, another timely uh, application, I suppose, uh, of um, looking into post-Soviet history, uh, the Russian post-Soviet history and uh, specifically focusing on U.S.-Russia relations. Uh, I think that'll be uh, illuminating given our current situation.